0: 1 Samuel, in chapter 2, and let's all stand together, and I will read for us this morning um, our passage, that's verses 27 through 36. And There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you, whom I shall not cut off from my altar, shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you, both of them. Shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. Then I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Lord, we are humbled by this passage. We're humbled, Lord, by your word. And I ask, Lord, today as we seek to, uh, to open up this passage and seek to understand what it, what it meant to the, the, the people that are listening and reading this, and, Lord, ultimately what it means to us and how we apply it, Lord, that you would just allow me to be your messenger to help connect the dots of this passage to today. In such a way, Lord, that it, it rivets in our hearts what you are calling us to do and be. Lord, we need your help. We need to be, uh, be thinking, Lord, in, in such a way that you have freedom to guide our thoughts. And Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit's activity in, in our hearts as we, as we glean, as we, as we listen, as we hear, as we ponder your word today. And Lord, just use me as your vessel, I ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Don't judge me. That's a common statement wildly used by both those inside and outside the church. It has become a cultural mantra. In fact, if you were to turn on the television set and watch a few shows like Oprah Winfrey or some kind of other show, or even some movies, you're going you're to hear this statement made a number of times. Don't judge me. Or if you're listening to, to radio talk shows, you're going to hear that by people either who are calling in or the person who is hosting the radio show. And it comes up many times when God's people interact with unbelievers. And ultimately it comes out when... Um, Believers seek to disciple those who claim to be a part of God's family. So this is, a, this is a, a phrase that has become part of the fabric of the church and our culture. Don't judge me. You should not judge me. Often it is an expression that people use because they don't want to be held accountable for their actions, their decisions, their behavior, their words. It is as if you're not allowed to confront them at all Because to do so would be judging. And this is what they would say. Hey, isn't that what Jesus says? And the answer is a tricky one, isn't it? Because Jesus does say, judge not. All right, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And I want you to see verse 1. It is what Jesus says. But what I want to point out as we begin here today is is this. It's not all that Jesus says. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. There it is. See, Jesus says it. But it's important that we read Scripture in its context. Jesus does say it, but what he says after this is also very important. So we're going to read now verses to and following for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye or how can you say to your brother let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye and he's absolutely right listen before you are going to judge someone you've got to do some personal heart surgery And you've got to say, the same standard by which I'm measuring you is the same standard by which I'm measuring myself. Now let's read on. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what is he ultimately saying? If you're going to judge, you need to make sure that you judge with the same measurement That you judge yourself and that you go to that measurement and you look at yourself and you pull out anything that you can see so that you can then follow through in faithfully helping that person who has a speck in their eye. Now friends, that is a counter-cultural, counter-even church-cultural reality. And we're living in a culture that does not like the word Judge. So if I'm going to tell someone who is an unbeliever that they are living a life of sin that will result in an eternity in hell, I'm not judging them. What am I doing? I'm simply telling them what Scripture says about their position before Christ. Now they might feel that it's judgmental. But it's supposed to be something that makes them think about their relationship with God. But it's the same standard that I hold myself to. Now, the difficulty comes when we're adding to Scripture and the measurement of judgment now goes beyond what Scripture says, right? That's where it becomes hypocritical. That's where it becomes legalistic. That's where it becomes you're not like us. But we need Scripture as the measuring stick to help one another grow in our walk with God, or for those who do not know Christ, to come to faith in Christ. So it is important that we get over these cultural distortions that present themselves falsely and confusingly as God's truth by opening up the word and understanding what it says in proper context. Now, I say all this because as we come to this passage in 1 Samuel, what we have here is a face-to-face encounter where God is announcing judgment against the house of Eli. I thought, God said, don't judge. If you open up God's word, you're going to find lots of places where God is pronouncing judgment. See, we cannot live in this... Man made culture, even man made in theory, Christian culture, where God is love and that He's love exclusively. He is also a God who judges. It is honest, it is true, it is real, it is what the Word of God says. In the end, there will be a judgment and the sheep will be separated from the goats unbelievers will be distinguished from the faithful followers of Christ. And those names not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. That is not me being judgmental. That's just the facts of what's going to happen. Now, how I share it might be judgmental. How I communicate the truth of God's word may be something that someone could legitimately say, you're communicating that to me in a judgmental way. But the fact that God judges is a truth that we all have to come face to face with. And so, this message of judgment comes at a time in Israel's history that was marked by the statement everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that was true primarily because there was no king in Israel. But as we have seen, the record of 1 Samuel has shown that is also because of that statement and in line with that statement that the leadership of Israel had abandoned honoring the Lord in the house of God. I mean, how do, you, how do you expect the followers in Israel to align themselves properly with God when the leadership has distorted the whole coming to the house of God and what takes place there? So that was true because of no king, but it was also true because of the leadership. So they were still holding sacrifices. They were still gathering at the house. But as you remember, the priests, in particular Hophni and Phinehas, and their crew, so to speak, were ignoring God's provision instructions, which allowed them to take from the thigh and the uh, breast of the sacrifice, but they went way further than that. We saw that last time. And they were abusive, they were harsh, and they were forcing people to give them the choicest meat. And Add to that the immorality that took place in the house of God with the servants, the female servants and the male priests in the house of God. This was a dark time in Israel's history. It was an all-time low, you might want to say. And Eli, knowing his son's great sin before the Lord, did speak to them going to give him credit, but he did not, and he would not rebuke them or remove them from their position as priests. That kind of behavior should have resulted in disqualification of serving in the house of God. In particular, we could make a strong case that that behavior should result in death, execution, because of their horrible sin, based on Deuteronomy 21 but he would not do any of that. And so this is where our text begins. Verse 27, and there came a man of God to Eli. Let me just tell you something. If ever there comes a man of God in this fashion to you, look out. What we're having here is a man of God, a representative of God, a prophet of God, an unnamed man of God, and when that happens in the, New, in the Old Testament, it's seldom good news. And such anonymous prophetic figures often bring messages of judgment. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. And as is typical with prophetic judgment speech, we have, first of all, an introduction. We have an accusation. And then an announcement of judgment. So here is my proposition for this morning. Here is where we are actually headed this morning. The writer of 1 Samuel wants us to see how God's actions, or so how the actions of Eli and his house are weighed by the God of knowledge. And this is flowing out of, if you remember, Hannah's song. And what you're going to find as we begin to or continue to study this passage, and not only was Hannah singing about her sorrow and her distress and her deliverance and those who are her enemies, there are bits and pieces of this song that we begin to see are, are prophetic and realized immediately as it relates to Eli in his house. Look, if you would, please, then, at that 1 Samuel 2, 3. Take no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And Hophni and Phinehas and the house of Eli are gonna have their actions weighed, and then some. So let's begin here with what I'm calling grace reviewed. Grace reviewed. God is saying through the, this man of God, thus says the Lord, I want to remind you of all that I have done with your ancestors, with your house. I want you to to be mindful, I want you to remember, I want you to to, to ponder this. So he's now going to review grace in the line of this, uh, of, of Eli's house, which goes back to Aaron. First of all, he says, I revealed myself to you. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father, when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? And the answer is yes, he did. And this is a reference to Aaron and his sons during the days of Moses. Eli was a descendant of Aaron through his fourth son, Ithmar, and that's important, just kinda hang on to that thought, okay? Aaron had four sons, the fourth son is Ithmar, and and Eli is a descendant of that line, okay? Now let's think a little bit. This is just kind of of take you on a little journey as it relates to the priesthood, and this will help kind of gel some things that are being talked about in this prophecy, in this judgment. What scripture is silent on is exactly how Eli came to be leading the priests in Israel. If you notice in this passage, he's not called the high, high priest. He's not even called the chief priest, but he is certainly the priest that is in charge in Shiloh. So what we can conclude is this, that Aaron was the first chief priest and his responsibilities passed to his third son, Eleazar, because his first two were killed. From Eleazar, the chief priesthood passed on to his son, Phineas. Don't confuse that with the present Phineas. This is a different Phineas. Okay. And according to Numbers 25.13, you want to jot that down and you can look at it a little later, he and his sons were given the covenant of perpetual priesthood. So the priesthood was to carry on down through the line of Eleazar. But something must have happened that the priesthood line ended under the descendants of Phinehas. We don't have record of it in scripture. And that responsibility of chief priest was transferred over to the line of Aaron's fourth son, Ithmar. Okay. Now the point that God is making in Bringing up verse 27 is that God spoke directly to Aaron, that was Exodus 4.14, telling him to go out into the wilderness and to meet his brother Moses. And there, God spoke to both Moses and Aaron about bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt and about the Passover. God revealed himself to Aaron. God revealed himself to Aaron and then ultimately, that revelation is carried out through the priesthood. So when God reveals himself, he's not doing that simply to impart information. When God makes himself known, he makes his will known. So God is communicating to Aaron, and he's communicating his will to both Aaron then and to Moses about what he was going to do with Israel. Now friends, just think about that. Being the recipients of God's revelation, is a great honor and privilege. Now, for us, we're sitting with Bibles on our laps today. Back in that time, to have the revelation of God was a unique thing. It came to a prophet. So they didn't sit down and have a Bible on their laps. There was a prophet that received direction and guidance from God. It was a great privilege then for them. It is also a great privilege for us. So like Aaron and Moses, we are privileged to be the recipients of God's revelation. It is only because he has gifted us this privilege that we get to know him, and we get to know his ways, and we get to know his character. And being blessed with God's revelation is no small thing for a child of God. It's something that we should be thankful for day by day because through it we, we, we get to know the nature and character of God. We get to know his requirements. We get to know what he thinks of us. We get to know how to maintain a relationship with him and so on. Friends, it's just a, it's a great privilege but Eli's line, his house, had received that privilege. This is God's grace and he's reminding him of his grace toward his house. Secondly, he says, not only did I reveal myself to you, I chose you, I chose you. Verse 28, did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar and to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? All right, God chose Israel, and then he chose the Levites, and then he chose Aaron, to carry out this priestly role. And he chose Aaron and his sons. And out of all the tribes of Israel. So God is in this process then of choosing who would be the ones that would carry this blessed ministry out of being priests before God. Exodus 28 verse 1 says this. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him for from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons. Nadab and Abihu. Eleazar, Ithmar. So there are the four sons. And they're all given this blessing to carry out this priestly role. So it's a privilege, friends, to be chosen by God. God had chosen Israel to be his people. God chooses now Aaron. And then, as we think about it ourselves, God has chosen us. And he's placed us in places of service. Now notice what the role of service was for them. We're given three descriptions here. To ascend... Up to my altar. The idea there is simply their their role and function was to perform the sacrifice, um, and to to step up. I want to say toward that place of sacrifice for worship on behalf of Israel. So just to be able to step into that place and to offer that sacrifice was a huge privilege and responsibility. Secondly, to burn incense twice a day as a reminder of God's presence in His house. Aaron would burn incense to the Lord and then to wear an ephod. Now, this is not the same ephod that Samuel was wearing. This is a high priestly ephod upon which the 12 tribes were were, um, represented by uh, these two stones. And so when, when the high priest would go in and offer his sacrifice to God, he was doing that on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. So this is an incredibly important responsibility. It's a an act of grace on God's part to privilege Aaron's line with these responsibilities. But not only that, he says, I gave to you. And notice what it says in this verse. I gave to the house of your father for all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. So taking on the responsibility of serving as priests in the house of God was no small thing So God generously provided for the needs as they served. God took care of them through the various offerings they were appointed to minister over. And with their incredibly important role, they were blessed with abundant privilege. So it was a privilege to serve in that capacity as a priest, but God took care of those who faithfully served him. Now let's just think about how how this relates to us being the recipients of God's self-revelation, his word, and having the privilege to be called to serve him as part of the church comes with abundant privilege, comes with abundant provisions that only come from God. And so the key question for us is, what will we do with them? What do we do with the privileges and the beautiful responsibilities that God has bestowed on us, his children? Will we humble ourselves before him and as undeserving children? Will we seek to learn all we can so that we can know and serve him better? Will we take our roles and responsibilities seriously so to seek to honor God as we serve him? Will we be faithful to steward the gifts he gives? Or, very much like Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, will we squander our privileges and responsibilities Will we turn our opportunities of service into opportunities to satisfy our own flesh? Will we drag others into our sinful behavior saying that it is good? Will we get so comfortable with our own sin that we will even become, uh, it will even become a custom among the body of Christ? I'm just trying to balance those two things together because we have been given so great responsibilities and privileges that come with those responsibilities, what will we do with those? And we need to take that as a serious question. Because, see, this is grace that Eli is being reminded of by God through this man of God before he pronounces his accusation. Look at all I've done for you. So now comes the confrontation. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices, right? If this is true, if you've been the recipients of this grace, you have this abundant blessing, this privileged position in Israel, why then? It jumps right in. Why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people. This is not a a question that he's looking for an answer for. This is rhetorical, because he's pronouncing something, and he's laying a foundation that he can build upon to justify his judgment on Eli and his family line. So what did Eli and his sons do with God's grace? First of all, it just says they scorned, the Lord's sacrifices and offerings. Literally, they kicked those sacrifices and offerings. It's kind of like saying, well, I don't want it. You know, he's going to kick it like a can. I mean, that's how they were treating what God called holy and sacred. There's a picture there for us. They scorned those sacrifices and those offerings. So they abused the sacrificial system, turning it into selfish gain. They abused the privileged uh, or the priestly privilege by bringing immorality into the house of God. And by doing these things, they were kicking what God calls sacred and holy. Secondly, they fattened themselves on the choicest meats. Now this ultimately is a scathing rebuke to Eli. It was his sons that were abusing the sacrificial, or the sacrificial system. He did say something. He did tell them that it was wrong but then he went and had dinner with them sitting down and eating the choicest meats that they had gleaned from the sacrifices in an improper way i mean you can imagine them sitting down at dinner saying boy the steak is really good now you really shouldn't take this stuff from those people at the excuse me at the uh, Altar. Man, this stuff is good, did you put salt on it? Yeah, but you know, next time don't, excuse me, take some more. Don't do that. I mean, that's kind of the picture that's going on here. Stop this, don't do this, but can you pass me some more? So he may have not been the active abuser, but by his weakness, his passivity, he was a willing participant. So God asked, Why? Why, when I give you so much, would you do these things against me? And we're told the answer Eli honored his sons over God. Eli honored his sons over God. He was more concerned about respecting and honoring his sons than he was concerned about respecting and honoring God's wishes. In the heat of parenting, Eli made a choice to put his wicked and worthless sons above God. He, he slapped them on the wrist, so to speak, and then joined them in indulging in satisfying his flesh. As a, there's a significant lesson for us, in particular all of us who are parents, as we consider Eli and his sons. In our parenting, when we become aware of the sinful behavior of our children, how do we respond? Do we lovingly yet boldly take them to God in his word, showing them what God says? Do we warn them about their ongoing sin, that it will reap damaging consequences unless they repent and confess? Do we give our children consequences that reflect the kind of sin that they have committed so as to teach and train them? Do we allow ongoing forgiveness and approachability to be in place so that reconciliation can take place with us and with God? Or, painting a picture a little differently, do we make excuses for our children? Do we somehow try to play it down as if it's simply a stage that they're going through? Do we just tell them that it's, it's wrong and then leave it there? we just want them to stop the behavior? Or are we looking to shape their hearts? And friends, I would be the first one to say that I fail in that. And as a dad, I have failed many times in that. And I would think that if there are husbands and wives sitting in this room that have children, this is an area of contention for you. Because more than likely, you have one parent who is stronger in discipline. You have another one that is not as strong in discipline. And there's a sense in which there's a beauty in that because you balance each other out. But we must be careful that we're not just kind of brushing it aside and and not teaching our children by discipline that God means what he says. How we parent also reflect the character of God into the lives of the children. Okay? Now it's even worse because we're living in a culture that says You know, the child is the center of the home. What the child wants is what the child gets. You must be careful that we don't dishonor God by putting our children before him. So if you're afraid to confront the sin in the life of your child because you don't want to hurt them by the conversation or the confrontation, you are then putting your feelings for that child and the feelings of that child before your obedience to God. And it's so easy to do. It's so easy to find yourself in the place where it's like, you know, I just, I feel like I'm just telling them all the time. And this is just going to do more damage. It's going to hurt them somehow that, but listen, you have a responsibility to represent God. Now, how you go about that is also a key question. You do it with graciousness. You do it with love. You do it with tenderness. But you speak the truth into their heart. It doesn't mean you have to be harsh. You can be bold and be firm. But it doesn't mean you have to be unloving. Our children need godly counsel. They need godly discipline. They need godly rebuke. They need godly training. Now that's a parenting dynamic. But this also rings true in our everyday relationships with others if we're putting our feelings or putting their feelings before God, then we're going to have difficulty actually coming together and saying, you know what, you did something that was a sin against me and we need to get this right because what you're going to say is I don't want to get them angry again or I don't want their feelings to be hurt. But what's more important is that God is honored. And Eli honored his sons above honoring God. And friends, we must be careful that we learn the lesson not to do that ourselves. So that's the accusation. That's what it comes down to. You know, if Eli had stood up to his sons, said, not only is this wrong, but this is sinful, and not only do you have to stop it, but you're done being priests. Because this is God's house. And in God's house, we don't behave that way, and we certainly don't bring other people into God's house and allow them and encourage them and, and help them to sin along with us. Not only should you be ashamed of yourselves, get out! This is God's house. There's a firmness that needs to be there. This is the leadership of Israel. And it had, it had dwindled along with the rest of the culture to the point where rampant sin was present in the body of, or in the house of God. And so God then, establishes his grace in the past, accuses them of their sin in the present, and now he pronounces judgment. Here's the third thing. Judgment is announced. What does he say? First of all, your house will forfeit God's promise. Your house will forfeit God's promise. Look at verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. I remember when I was in Russia. I think I've shared this before, but this was um, a number of years ago when Bill Clinton was president. And I remember being in, in Russia and talking to some Russian people in the churches for the first time, and they actually had a little distaste for Christians in the United States. Because they said, how can your president, being a Baptist, and that's how they began, how can your president, being a Baptist, commit such sin in the White House, and the church see nothing wrong with it, and not confront him for his sin?" They had a point because there was a perception about the church in America from people who are saying, we want to honor God. And what we have here then is he says, I promise that your house and the houses of your father should go in and out before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Are we honoring God? That's the ultimate question. So the house of Eli had been the objects of God's gracious provision as they served in the house of God. Now because of their sinful behavior, they have forfeited their place of privilege before God and Israel. Now at first, you might be shocked to read that Eli's house would forfeit God's promise. Isn't it true that God never breaks his word? What's the answer? Yeah. Isn't it true that he keeps all of his promises. I heard that. Someone's teaching well. Absolutely. So, all right. So that's a little confusing for us here. Because the answer is yes, he keeps his promises. But the promise that had been made years ago, get this now, was made to Aaron and his sons. Okay, So it isn't that God revoked or canceled his promise to Aaron and his sons, but specifically to the line of Aaron's fourth son, Ithamar. God's judgment will fall on the line of Ithamar, leaving only one descendant alive. and We're going to get to that in a little bit. His name will be Abiathar, the grandson of Eli. But later, after the death of David... He will eventually align himself with Adonijah rather than with Solomon, and Solomon will banish him. And Zadok, the descendant of Aaron through his third son Eleazar, will begin to serve as the high priest. And I know that's a lot to take in right now. All right, but God is at work even through man's sinfulness to faithfully carry out His promise. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 2 verse 27. And if you have a cross-reference Bible, this verse should be right where we are right now. In your cross-reference, 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 27. This is why the writer of 1 Kings says the following. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being high, from being priest of the Lord thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Okay? I just want to connect you to that. And one of the things that's going to happen as we go through the book of 1 Samuel is you're going to begin to see these threads and these things that God pronounces that aren't necessarily taking place immediately, but they eventually are working their way out. The high priestly line would, would fall to the descendants of Eleazar rather than Ithamar, but still to the line of Aaron. So God's promise to Aaron and his sons continued. It wasn't done away with. Now, what is the reason that God gives for this punishment? Those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. With great privilege comes great responsibility. And when that responsibility is scorned, God will not be mocked. Now, it may continue for a bit. I mean, it continued there in the house of God for a number of years, while Samuel was growing up, right? Isn't that what we saw last time? Year after year, Hannah would come with her husband, and bring an ephod every time. We're getting this picture that there's time taking place. And this sinful behavior, this sinful activity has become the custom in the house of God. Yet God knows all about it. He is the God of knowledge. And he's aware. And he's working out his plan. And that plan includes judgment to those who do not honor him. Now friends, there's a big picture application to that. Wickedness in this world does not get away with their wickedness. God brings about his judgment in his timing. It may not be your timing, but it's his timing. And his timing is always right. And so what we do is we do what we can to say, this is unjust. But we also turn to God and say, God, you are the God who exercises your judgment on mankind. And we're going to leave that with you. It's a wonderful place when you believe that God is sovereign over the affairs of man. So dishonoring God will always bring consequences. They may not be immediate, but you can be sure that unrepentant sinfulness will be weighed in the balance. So not only will your house forfeit God's promise, but secondly, your house will be punished. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever now just a couple of things here, the expression I will cut off your strength literally means I will cut off your arm okay and as I have said, these events will take place over some time, but they will take place. Eli's house will be cut off, and only one person will be left. Let's just trace that a little bit in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4. And if you just want to read the headings probably in your Bible, you can see this, but I will try and direct you to a few passages of Scripture here. First Samuel chapter 4. Look, if you would, please, at verse 10. So the Philistines fought... And Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home, and there was a great, a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, what? Died. God used a battle to bring about the death of Hophni and Phinehas. Verse 12, and a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn, with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the men uh, hurried and came to, and told Eli. And now Eli was. Ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man uh, said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he, what, died, okay, now, that's the first thing you need to see, the beginning of the fulfillment of this judgment takes place just a couple of chapters later, now go to chapter 22, chapter 22, not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to notice what happens here. Look at verse 18. Then then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. This is the one lone descendant that I was telling you about. All right. So all of the priests then, the descendants then of Eli, Hophni, and Phineas, all of them die except for one. Abiathar is his name. And um, ultimately, he would be banished by. Saul, um, because he sided with uh, his brother when Saul came into into power as king. So, he says, first of all, the house of of Eli will forfeit its promise, your house will be punished, and the third thing here is this, you will have proof, and we've already read that, and this is that shall come upon your two sons Hophni and Phinehas shall be the sign to you both of them shall die on the same day and that is exactly what happened so i mean for for this to be a prophetic statement a prophetic pronouncement it not only was giving information about what was going to happen but it included a sign to confirm that what god said would happen actually does happen. So when Eli hears the news, guess what he's thinking? He's thinking about this judgment. And he's realizing that God is carrying out this judgment against him. Now friends, this, this judgment does not end here. It continues on. And this is, this is where, remember at the beginning I told you that the writer of 1 Samuel, in verses 27-36, wants us to see how the actions of Eli's house are weighed by God, the God of knowledge, and then some. This is the, and then some, okay? This is how God now works. Not only does he want us to see his judgment, but he also wants us to see his providence. Although grace has been scorned, his grace cannot be removed. He will bring about the salvation he has planned. The disobedience and sinful behavior of a generation of priests who have contempt for the house of God will not thwart God's providential plan to bring about his king. The rebellion of man does not send Yahweh into a tailspin of his redemption plan. God will rule his people, though particular or through particular leaders or apart from them. Dale Davis says it this way, God's kingdom and people may suffer from arrogant, immoral, unrepentant priests, but God will have a faithful priest. He insists on it. God has a sort of saving stubbornness that will not turn aside from profiting his people. And the stubbornness he's talking about is this, that those that may be in leadership may sin, they may distort and totally... um, Uh, corrupt the things of God but God's stubborn will continues on and will accomplish all that it set out to accomplish God's providence cannot be thwarted by the sinfulness of man now friends this is this is not in the front of the story this is kind of in the background of the story And we divided up this chapter into three parts as we studied it, but we we could take last week and and this week together. Remember last week, all these things were happening in the temple, and every time it was kind of like, you know, and Samuel was growing, you know, and then another account of the sinfulness of Hophni and Phinehas, and in the background, and Samuel was growing, and another one going up there, and Samuel was growing. And now there's this message of judgment, and there's this theme that continues on, that God will bring about his priest. See, God is at work even when man is sinful. And I know it's easy for us to be so consumed with the affairs of man. We're in awe when we hear of the kind of attacks that are going on around the world. There's a little bit of fear that is put into us, and we're wondering, God, what are you doing? But remember that your God is in control, He is sovereign. And there is nothing going on in this world that he is not aware of. And if he allows any one of us to go through suffering, there is a reason behind that that is bringing about his glory and his purposes through that suffering. Because he is in the business of bringing about his redemptive plan to its completion. And he will do that not only through Samuel, he'll do it also through us. It was God's will that Hophni and Phinehas would die, and it was God's will that judgment would continue to fall on the house of Eli. But even through this darkness, God has been at work raising up his faithful priest. Now, who is that priest? Who is this, this priest that, um, that we're talking about here? That actually should be there right now, okay? Now, immediately in this context, who would you think is the priest that's being talked about? What does it seem like? Samuel, right? So is it, is it Samuel? Possibly. Samuel is presently serving in the house of God as priest, and he will ultimately be faithful. But Samuel will actually take a new, more prophetic role in Israel. So there may be a kind of an immediate response here to, yeah, he's raising up this priest. But there's also a prophetical idea, something that's looking ahead. Then as I told you, as I walked you through the different lines, you have the line of Ithamar that ends up with uh, Abiathar, and you have the line then of Eleazar that somehow gets back to Zadok, and you have Zadok and Abiathar that are living during the time of uh, Solomon, and um, Abiathar aligns himself with Abijah, and You have Solomon, or Zadok, who aligns himself with Solomon, and so Solomon takes Abiathar and he banishes him from the kingdom. What does Zadok now do with Solomon? What happens in Jerusalem that has been building up over time that Solomon will build, that a high priest will be a part of Solomon's temple? The glory of Israel. The high priest walking into the temple of Solomon and offering sacrifices in this incredible uh, structure that God, through Solomon, has been allowed to create. And outside the country will be Ebiathar, the last of the descendants of the house of Eli, looking on at the prosperity of Israel and a place where he knows his family line could have been. But because of their sinfulness in the house of God, that position was removed from them. Great weeping, great sadness, because of sinfulness that was allowed to go on in the house of God. So is it Samuel? Possibly. Is it Zadok? Assuredly. I think that's exactly who it is. But there's another one, and that would be Jesus. Because any high priest always falls short of the better high priest, the greater high priest, who is Jesus. So ultimately, Jesus is that high priest. He will be the final priest that God would raise up. And he would become, based on Hebrews 2.17, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Friends, this is this is the message of judgment. But for us who are reading this, this is the message of encouragement, because in the midst of that mess, God is in the process of raising up a priest and the ultimate priest, Jesus Christ Himself. And then, in particular, notice what happens in the house. And this is how it all kind of ties together. And I mentioned it. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And she'll say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. There's hope for Israel as a nation, but there's only despair for the house of Eli. The descendants of the ones who used to steal the best meat from the sacrifices by force are now begging for silver and bread. Their punishment Fits the crime. I'm going to read Hannah's song, and I just as I read, I just want you to pick up the bits and pieces that 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 seem to be fulfilled in this story. You can follow along beginning at verse one of chapter two. And Hannah prayed and said, "My heart exalts in the Lord, and my." My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor the rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit Thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now friends, it's powerful when you just see some of those phrases there connected to what's going on with the lineage of Eli and this judgment. And I want to kind of bring things now to a conclusion. And I want to identify three things, three areas that I think are helpful, that just gleaning from this passage. And we, we just really need to settle on these. Number one, judgment is a certainty. We just said again judgment is a certainty. Each one of us will have to stand before God one day to give account. How will you fare? It is a certainty. The ungodly will not have a leg to stand on. Their pleas before him will sound something like this. Look at how much good I did in the world. Lord, I've kept the commandments. I've served as a Sunday school teacher all my life. See how much money I've given to charity. I did more good than bad. Lord, all these things I did in your name. But their pleas will fail. The godly, not because of the righteousness which they have done, but the godly will stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And their words are words of humility and unworthiness. Lord, there is nothing that I have done in this world to deserve your kindness and grace. Lord, all that I have been able to do has been a result of your hand at work in and through my life. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in the end, God will cast the ungodly into the lake of fire along with death and hell. Read Revelation 20. This is the ultimate death, to be separated from God for eternity with no hope. Judgment is certain. Secondly, Repentance is a possibility. Behind a message of judgment is a hope for repentance. When God comes and confronts us with his word, reveals our sinfulness through the mirror of God's word, the purpose of that is so that we will repent. Now what is repentance? Repentance is seeing our sin as God sees it, wicked and an offense to him. It is confessing our sin, meaning agreeing with God that our sin is an offense to him. It is asking him to forgive us and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. It is walking in a new way with Jesus now as our Lord and Master, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, and following says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Right. Th- this is not a formula for not burning out. This is a formula for eternity. The rest that's being talked about here is, is, is resting from the fighting of your sinfulness in this world. He's saying, come to me. And when you come to me, you will find rest. But he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Repentance is a change of heart and mind that leads to a change in a person's life. Now what's important here is that we understand that in repentance we're saying, Lord, I see what you say about my sin. I see that my sin is an offense to you. I am asking you to forgive me of my sin, and I am reinstituting you, so to speak, as my master rather than myself in my life. I want to rest in you. Now, friends, judgment is certain, but repentance is possible. Repentance is not a popular word today, is it? It's not a popular word in our culture. And it, sadly, it isn't that popular within the body of Christ. It seems harsh to say repent. And repentance is not just something that we do at conversion. It's something that we are doing Day by day, as God reveals sin in our lives, we're saying, yes, Lord, that is sin. You're right, that is sin. I confess that sin. I ask for forgiveness of that sin. Now, that repentance is not a repentance for salvation. That is a repentance that restores me back to fellowship with God. But it's important to recognize this is part of repentance, and repentance is not something you typically hear a lot of preaching about. Because there's a sense in which we don't want to press the people too hard. Well, the word of God is going to press... God's people, and they are going to respond. And I'm just pleading with you, if you feel the the pressure of judgment on you from God, know that repentance is possible. And actually, that judgment that you feel on you that is from God is directing you to the place of repentance. And through repentance, you are restored back to that relationship with Christ. But not only is repentance possible, but forgiveness is a reality. We all sin. We all know that we sin. But we can be so we all sin in our thinking that we don't actually deal with our sin. And when we leave things kind of floating around like that, yeah, you know we're all sinners, yeah. Okay, we're all sinners, so what are we going to do with the sin? We're going to say, yeah, we're all sinners. Yeah, you know, we're all sinners. A lot of people use that expression. What are they doing? They're trying to minimize their sin. Rather than saying, hey, if we're all sinners, let let, let God maximize our awareness of how sinful that sin actually is. So that through that, that judgment, we can repent and ultimately find forgiveness. This is the goal. This is the goal. It's restoration to such a degree that you can stand before God and say, I'm clean. (laughs) I'm forgiven. There's nothing between us. (sighs) And not have to question whether what God said he would do, he is actually doing because he does always keep his promises. So through forgiveness, we can begin afresh in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. What begins as judgment is designed to lead us to repentance, which in turn moves us into forgiveness and full restoration with God. So don't be offended. Hear this. Don't be offended at God's judging you. It's, It's God's goal to restore you back to communion with him. And then I'll say it this way. Don't be offended when the word of God is judging you. And that word of God may be judging you because it's in the hands of another believer who's concerned about you. And that could come in the form of a friend. It could come in the form of a coworker, It could come in the form of another fellow believer in Christ. It could come in the, 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 the form of a parent speaking to a child. It could even come in the form of a child speaking to a parent. But when the word of God is the mirror that reflects who we are and what we are presently doing, the goal of that is forgiveness. So the goal of any loving biblical confrontation is to see God's children restored in their relationship with God. Let me finish with this verse, Hebrews seven twenty-six, speaking of Jesus. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is Jesus, your Christ, the Son of God, who stood in your place and took on his shoulders the judgment that you deserved. But instead of you receiving that judgment, he receives it. And in receiving it, he clothes you with himself, his righteousness. This is the priest that we have to worship. It stands and offers up his sacrifice to God as a covering for our sin, bringing reconciliation, bringing forgiveness. That is who we are in Christ. Now friends, let's live in that for his glory. Or thank you again for your kindness to us. We are undeserving of your grace. And yet, Lord, as we Catalog the kind of ways in which your grace was measured out to Eli and his line. Lord, we recognize that that is true of us. We have been the recipients of your revelation. You have chosen us, you have bestowed on us countless gifts. And yet, Lord, we continue to sin. And, Lord, you are drawing us not to just simply acknowledge, yes, we continue to sin, but to not only acknowledge, but to see that sin as sinfulness. In all of its sinfulness, in all of its offense before you. Yes, that sin has been paid for by your son, Jesus Christ. But that sin stands in the way of an ongoing relationship with you. And, Lord, you reveal that to us so that we can be fully and completely restored into fellowship with you. And so, Lord, I pray for parents today who may need to evaluate how they are representing you in their home. I pray for children today after having prayed for parents who need to recognize your great care and hand at working through their parents to fashion and shape them to be conformed to you. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, because not only do we come recognizing that we are struggling with sin, but there are some who are so entangled in the sinfulness that they're struggling with. But Lord, they need to repent. They need to see it as as you reveal it. Come before you humbly and ask for your forgiveness, ask for your help, allow you to be master because you are master, but to listen to you, to trust you, to follow your will. And Lord, in so doing, we see your hand at work in our lives. We see your providence going on, ushering us closer and closer to that time of final salvation where we will stand in your presence. Some of us judged at the great white throne where unbelievers will be judged and not be able to stand on our own two feet. Those who are God's children to stand before you in judgment, but Lord, a judgment that reflects back to you the praises that you are due. And then as one body, we will worship you. Lord, we long for that day. We look forward, Lord, to standing in heaven with the throng of The people of God gathered worshiping you as our Lord and Savior, yet you have called us to live our lives now. So Lord, help us to do that in a way, Lord, that would please you, that would honor you. That we would do it for your glory. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen.